you're just joining us today, so glad to have you. And uh, we're going to jump right into it this morning. And if you were here two weeks ago, uh, you noticed that the title of today is uh, very similar to what we did two weeks ago. Uh, and I'm not going to be repeating what I did two weeks ago, but I'm going to use the same uh, foundation, and that is the need for a shift. We've been in this, for those of you, and let me talk for a moment to those of you that are part of Antioch West, we have been in a shift. It's been now for several years. It was accelerated during COVID, but it started back in 2017, and it continued, and during that shift, there has been some uncertainty. There has been some finding our way. Uh, there has been some uh, things that we have done that may not have bore uh, immediate fruit, but we know God is at work and we are learning to walk with him every day. That's, I know it sounds funny, but that's not easy because we have this stuff called flesh. We have this stuff that, that uh, desires its own way, its own will. And so we have a lot of things that are, are, are contrary to walking in God's will, right? We have this thing called a carnal mind. And carnal mind is not a sinful mind. Carnal mind is a fleshly mind, right? We do things according to what we, you know, the, the idea nowadays is to follow your heart. That's what, the, that's what our world tells you. Well, then follow your heart. But the Bible says guard your heart. So if you follow your heart, that may not be a good thing because the Bible says that our heart is, is deceitful. And we don't even know our own heart. So we're not to follow our heart, we're to guard our heart. But we need a shift, and God is shifting, and it's been a challenge. And so many of you over the last couple of years, especially, God has talked to you, and God has uh, uh, um, molded and shaped your thinking. In Romans 12, verse 2, we've, we've, we've read it, we've quoted it. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed. How? By the renewing or the changing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Right? These are the steps by which God's working. He's molding and shaping our thinking. We're seeing him differently. We're seeing ourselves differently. We're seeing his church differently. And all that is for a purpose. All that's for a, a specific purpose he has. But we're continuing this shift. Now, we can call it discipleship. We can call it a, 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 a I don't know what, the, you can call it many, many different, you can put many, many different uh, um, um, descriptions to a shift. But in the end, it's not necessarily the word disciple is the key today. It's, it's shift. We need a shift. We're continuing to be in a shift. Have we made some progress? Yes, but God is still working. So we're going to continue that today and talk more about that shift because it's not just a general shift. This is not general stuff where, oh, wow, you know, that's just good, huge, big picture. But today we're going to talk more specifically about how you need to shift, how some thinking in your world needs to continue to shift. And we're going to continue to talk about that today, what that means in that shift. And we're going to go today to some scripture and we're going to talk about some things. Number one, what do you expect? What do you expect? Because here's, we're going to read some scripture today that's a, it's of great importance. And uh, I, wow, I didn't realize that was that small. I thought I made it bigger. I apologize. Unless you have some kind of special x-ray vision, I have no idea how you're going to read that. Well, you live and you learn. There are scriptures on the screen, unless you are holding your phone an inch away from your face, you probably are not going to read that. I did not realize it was going to be that small. I was counting on the size of the screen behind me. Well, you know what? I said earlier, we're all learning. So 
Here's another learning process. Make the slide bigger. I thought I made it bigger. Okay, well, you live it and you learn. So I'll read it for you since you probably can't see it. But if you'd like to follow along up there in that top corner, if you can't see it, it says Luke chapter 12, verse 35. So if you can't see that, and you probably can't, um, Luke chapter 12. uh, uh, Oh, I was told they can read it. Well, I need to go back. Here we go. I've done messed myself up here. Um, They can read. I was told you can read. Well, thank you, Brother Bickley, for telling us that. So we're going to skip for a moment. Luke 12, 35. Let's go to Luke 12, 41. Because I want you to read this, this Luke 12, 35, uh, Jesus is breaking down some expectations, some understanding. And he kept, he kept repeating over this expectation, this idea that there are expectations. And Luke 12, 41 uh, says this, Peter said, Lord, are you telling us this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and the wise uh, manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Now, this is an idea that Jesus, and we we didn't read it. I skipped through it because I didn't have much faith. You could read it now that you can read it. Now I can't go back. So we're we're all learning. This is fun. This, This is what you call live. So we are live today. But the idea what Jesus is trying to get across to these disciples is that that there are expectations that he has. Jesus has expectations. Jesus has expectations. And I know we like the idea and we talk about the idea that, you know, God is so loving. God is so kind. God is so gentle. God is so merciful. And all those are true. But the problem is we take that thought and we kind of go beyond the the bear the, the boundaries of scripture and we take that idea that jesus is loving jesus is kind jesus is gentle all those things we go beyond that and we say well basically he loves you he just loves you and yes he does but that doesn't mean he has no expectations of you and that's what you have to be careful with the idea there is is that yes jesus loves jesus is merciful jesus is full of grace all these things however He does have expectations. He's telling his disciples this from verse 35 to verse 40. He's giving them this parable. And this parable is based in the idea that there are expectations that he has. And Peter is kind of pulled back by this and says, okay, wait a minute. Are this is to everybody or to us? Who are you talking to? And Jesus comes further expounding upon what he's trying to say. And this line here that I've highlighted is as blessed as that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Doing what? Doing what was expected of him. Doing what's expected. Jesus continues. Truly I say to you, he will set him over the possessions. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat, uh, beat the male and female servants and to eat and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on the day he does not expect him to. And in the hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That doesn't sound so good. Forgive my English. That doesn't sound great. I mean, this is Jesus talking, right? This is the guy who, 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 you know, is so loving, so kind. And he basically says, listen, if, 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 if the master comes when the servant's not expecting it and the servant's doing things, the master's not, uh, 
expecting him to be doing, um, here's the outcome. He will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Um, in case you can't read that, that's not very good. So he continues. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Hello, if you're not following along, I don't. Again, I was told you could read it. I, if you can't read it, then I, I would I would I would encourage you to grab a Bible really quickly, find one immediately, so you know what I'm reading. I'm not making up. And read with me again, verse 47, Luke 12, verse 47. Notice who's talking here. It's Jesus, and notice what Jesus is saying. This. Is in it's it it is straight to the point. It doesn't le, re, le, re, move, uh, leave any room for error. And he makes this statement, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what does uh and and, and did what will uh. Deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now, here's the last verse. We quoted this before. A lot of you know this. My uh, mic stand is blocking the bottom part of that. But it says, everyone to whom much will be given, to whom much will be required. And from him to know they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What is really Jesus trying to get at here? He's trying to get at there are expectations on you and I. This is really what he's trying to point at here, folks. In Luke 12, if you read it from verse 35 to verse 48, go back and read it. This is in the ESV. You can read it in multiple different translations, and each one kind of gives a little bit different flavor, but they're straight to the point. He wasn't, he wasn't beating around the bush. This wasn't cryptic here. This was straight to the point. Jesus is saying, I have expectations. I know, I know we don't like to talk about that because the problem is when expectations are, are, are spoken, then that kind of puts it on us to go, okay, wait a minute. If he's expecting something out of us, number one, what is he expecting? And number two, am I fulfilling those expectations? We like the ambiguity of things. We like how we can leave things in the murky and the unknown because therefore we don't really have to have any benchmark because if there's no benchmark, then we're not really having to worry about anything on our part. And God loves, God cares, God's merciful, God's gentle, God's gracious. All those things kind of fit in. And guess what? We kind of let ourselves off the hook. But read this again. And this line here, verse 47, and I thought I had it highlighted, but I didn't. Verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will. Do you know what that sounds like? Go to Luke chapter 7. Not Luke, Matthew chapter 7, I apologize. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Those of you that know that scripture, what does it say? It says, in the last day, there are going to be people that come and say, Lord, Lord, here's what we did. We cast out devils in the name. We did wonderful works in the name. We, I mean, God, we did some awesome stuff with you. And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. You who work iniquity. What is iniquity? Iniquity is my will Instead of God's will, it's the core of iniquity. It's me doing my will versus God's will. The expectation here that he's trying to get across to his disciples is, is that I have expectations on you. So what does that have to do with you and me today? Well, let's go to here. What do you expect? What do you expect? Let's go a little further and, and expound upon this. 
Do your expectations match God's expectations? That's the question. Do your expectations match God's expectations? Do they? Now, we all have expectations. You have expectations of me. You have expectations of yourself. You have expectations of people around you. You go to work. If you're an employer, you have expectations of your employees. If you're an employee, you have expectations of your employer. We all have expectations. You go to a store. You have expectations of that store. What kind of service you will get. What's it, what the product is. The quality of the product. There are expectations in everything we do. But let's talk about this a little further. What are God's expectations? And do your expectations max his expectations? Now we're going to get to why this is important for us to know this as we build this foundation. But let's read this scripture. 1 John 4 verse 16. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. Now watch this. And we live in God. Our love grows more perfect. And here's the key to this verse. This is the this is a huge part so that we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. Whoa. Now think about what was just said here. There's more scripture to expound upon this, but we'll just use this for right now. What the scripture really is saying here is this, that if you and I are attempting, or we have the, we have the name of Jesus on us, we've been called by his name, filled with his spirit, we're, not, we're no longer in darkness, but we're walking in light, that our judgment is not in the days to come, that we are being judged eternally right now. Think about what's being said. We're expounding what this verse means. This verse means is that I can't just say I'll keep deferring obedience or deferring walking with Jesus, even though he has already called me, baptized me by his name, washed me free of my sins, filled me with the spirit. I can't defer obedience. Deferred obedience is disobedience. And he says this, John says, why do we need to do this? So that on the day of judgment, we will not be afraid. Why? So we can face with confidence. How can you walk on the day of judgment in confidence? Think about that. The day of judgment seems very heavy. It's a, it, the day of judgment is something that is, that is, that is, that is, a, that's, that's sobering to think about. Here is God almighty judging man and each individual man to where that man will spend eternity. How can we stand confident on that day? And the confidence on that day comes because we've lived like Jesus where? Here in this world. So if you want to know why we keep going back to the Gospels, why we keep looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why, why we have spent the last couple of years digging through what would Jesus do? How would he do it? What was Jesus thinking? How is Jesus, again, all this stuff to be like Christ, to be a disciple. Why is it important to be like a disciple? Because the disciple is someone who's taught and trained, someone who is trying to walk in the likeness of that person by which they're being discipled by. That's why all this stuff is not just good church rhetoric or just good uh, uh, um, methods and methodology. It's essential for your salvation because it says right here in 1 John four seventeen 
that you and I are living like Jesus Christ here on this earth. And because of that, we can stand in, in confidence. So, let's take that. Do your expectations match God's expectations? We're not going here today, but let's just take it for a moment. If you held your life up to Jesus and he was the ultimate mirror of your life, would your life match his? Now, let's be honest. Mine wouldn't match his. I'm not suggesting that any of us would match his life. I'm not suggesting that somehow we should... uh, be perfect and never have flaws. The Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is what are your expectations and what are your goals? What, what are you driving towards? If I don't get anywhere, if I, don't, if I don't say anything past this, this verse alone should speak to you today. Are we living like Jesus here on this earth? That wasn't just something that's a cool little slogan. That's out of the straight out of the book as the expectations. God expects us to live like him on this earth. So why not study how he did it? And that's why we spent so much time the last couple of years talking about Jesus. Because there's no one else to study. We can study Peter and Paul and we can listen to how they talk, but we got to keep going back to the source. Peter and Paul and John and James, all the writers of the New Testament point us back to the source. They're not superior to the source. They're pointing us back to the source. You know, in, in sci- and I'm, I'm not a scientist. I, I don't really understand too much about how it works. I do know some, some basic understanding of science. But you have somebody in science who, who, who writes and, 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 and formulates a theory, an understanding of something. You know, the theory of relatively, uh, 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 relativity. There's different theories out there. I, I can't think right now off the top of my head all the theories, and some of you probably could name a lot of them. But you go back and they, they formulate, they do all the calculations. They know it's true, and they're called theoretical scientists or theoretical physicists. But then when that theory is published, then there are people that don't know how to come up with the theory, but they can take the theory and they can put it into practice. And they can actually prove the theory works in the real world because they're putting it in practice in multiple different ways to prove the theory. Now, I'm not suggesting Jesus was theoretical. My point is Jesus lived his life. He lived his life. He he interacted. And especially for that three and a half years, we know a lot about what he did. Not as much the prior to that, but that three and a half years we know. So what is Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, all the writers of the New Testament, what do they do? The writer of Hebrews They're taking Jesus and what Jesus did and they're putting in the real world applications and different ways and different understanding. But it all points back to him. So what do you expect? Let's go a little further if we can because we're going to get into this. This is where we're really heading. Because Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? This is not our church. This is not... My church, it's his church. Let's talk about this for a second because we're, we're going to set up the, the point that we're going to get to today. And, and we ask, what do you expect? But let's go further. What do you think people want or expect from church? 
Now, I put some ideas down here, and, and there are probably more. Like, for example, a really good service, right? Um, Age-strong, age-specific ministries, you know, youth ministry, singles ministry, married ministry, senior ministry, prison ministry, uh, um, helping ministry, love ministry, hug ministry, bacon ministry. I mean, they got, we got ministries for everything. Car wash ministry. I don't mean literally if you go now, churches, they got, they put the label ministry on everything. How about this? Certain style, volume, or length of singing. That's a big expectation now. Some people like the new stuff. Some people like the old stuff. Some people like it loud. Some people like it quiet. Some people like a guitar. Some people like an organ. Some people like a beat. Some people like it slow. Those expectations. Because let's be, be frank, I've, been in church my entire life. And there's some songs you sing. Some people just sit there and stare. And that same person, you sing another song, and man, they're in it. They're in it to win it. Without ever stopping for a moment thinking, whatever song I'm singing, who am I singing it for? Am I singing it for him or am I singing it for me? Because you know what? There's a song we sing. It's, a, it's, it's about as simple as you can get. It's one, it's, it's literally a one word song. And it simply is, it's, it's very easy. You can learn it in about two seconds. It's simply this. Hallelujah. 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 I mean, it's really one word, literally one word. That's about as easy as you can get. Simple song, right? Some of you like that. I bet you, I guarantee you, some of you were singing along with me. You know that song. You might like that song. Some of you may have closed your eyes and lifted your hands while you were singing it. Others, you probably like, oh my goodness, this song, uh, that song, it's just, oh my, just literally one word and it's so slow and it's early in the morning, for goodness sake. But then we start singing songs like, um, in your presence, when I'm at your throne, it's like fire. Shut up in my bones. You're the one. You're the one I desire. You're the all-consuming fire in your presence. When I'm at your throne, it's like fire. Shut up in my bones. You're the one, uh, the one that I desire. You're the all-consuming fire. Look at that, right? Some of you are like, ooh, ooh, yes, morning. Let's go. Shoulders start shaking. Foot starts tapping. Like, I mean, like, it's, that's your song, right? That's my song. Oh, there's another song. It's got a little more of a, 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 of a, a, of a beat to it. My God is more than enough. He will supply all my needs. He is the El Shaddai. He always looks out for me. Mm, mm, Jehovah Jireh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
He is my God. And he goes, why should I worry about the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, when by my faith I know my God is more than enough? Come on, I guarantee you right now, somebody got off their seat in the living room because that's your song. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying you should have... But my point is, even with our expectations of worship, we've made worship about what gets me moving versus saying, you know what, whatever I'm singing, am I singing it to him? Whether it's hallelujah, whether it's the song fire, or whether it's more than enough, or whether whatever it is, amazing grace. I'm singing it to him, but our expectations, that's why I ask you, what do you expect? What do you expect? It's amazing. I I've been in church my entire life and we sing a song and look around and people are looking up like the ceiling like, oh, wow, this is great. This is, oh, wow. Wait a minute. I didn't think we were singing to entertain. I thought we were singing to do worship to him. How about this? Well communicated and relevant sermons. And I put in there, I hope you can read this. I was told you can read it. Don't be boring. Don't be, I mean, come on, man. Don't be boring. So well-communicated, relevant, don't be boring. And I love this. This has become a huge thing nowadays. We're coming, to, we're coming to be a part of the body of Christ. We're coming to be equipped so that we can walk out and be servants and disciples of Jesus Christ. But we want to do that conveniently. Now churches is parking and child care and coffee would be nice. Now we've done this stuff. There's nothing wrong. I'm not saying anything is wrong with any of this list. My point is, if our expectations are built in this list, if this is what we're expecting, are we matching up with what God expects? Because I got to be honest with you, I've been to Africa and literally we gathered together and this is no joke under a tree. And the, and the music, the instrument that we had for that day was they took these boards and they, they cut them in various lengths and various thicknesses and they dug a hole in the ground and they put these boards over the hole and they would hit them with a stick and each board would make a little different sound. And that's what they used to play music. And that was where we gathered together. But we were just as much a part of the body of Christ there as some of the nicest, most advanced, technologically audio, all the music, all the trimming of any church in America is the same body of Christ. The problem is that Our expectations, do they meet God's expectation? Let's continue. And here's the point. We've Americanized church. That's my my new word. We've Americanized church, and we've taken that, and we've exported it all over the world. Because if you look how church looked, America has taken over God's church. We make it about convenience. We make it about entertainment. We make it about all these things. And it's really an Americanized church. And because it's an Americanized church, it's an Americanized gospel. Right? Because what we preach now, it's not the fact that we are in need of saving. In fact, we need in need of changing. It's the fact that God is here to make your life utopic. That if you give your life to Jesus Christ, 
His desire is to make your life wonderful and beautiful and prosperous, and he's going to bless you. And if you give, he's going to give back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, right? And if you have problems in your life, it's because somehow, some way, you've disobeyed or disappointed God. Because if God's not blessing you and you're not living in the biggest house and the nicest cars and the nicest clothes and you've got money to spend and go on vacation and post on Instagram, then suddenly you're not following God. And the fact of the matter is that's an American version of God. That's not the Bible version of God. So we're not talking about Americanized expectations. We're talking about what does God expect? So let's go a little further. Weave, we treat, I don't know why I put weave. There's a little bit of a typo there. Sorry about that. I don't know why I put weaved. We treat the church like it's a place to go as a believer, not a people advance the kingdom. I'm sorry, somehow that was a terrible sentence and I did not proofread it. That's why you should always proofread. Let's go further. We view the church only as a hospital to bring people to instead of equipping outposts to send people out from. These are our expectations, right? These are the expectations that we have, but do they match God? Let's go, let's go a little further. This was staggering. I read this not too long ago, and I thought this was a staggering statistic. There was a poll from 2018 revealed that 51% of churchgoers said they had never heard of the Great Commission. That's staggering to think about. And that 25% of those polled can recall hearing the words, but do not know what they mean. That's some, these are people that are going to, going to a church and 51% said they can, they, they had never heard of the great commission. So what does this mean? Let's get a little further. This means that the primary mission of the church The mission that Jesus himself gave to his disciples has been either watered down or replaced entirely. Instead of making Jesus's final words our first work, we've relegated them to instructions for the head leaders, thinking that our sole purpose is to come and sit, not to go and serve. Remember we started about this whole thing with God has expectations. Let me break it down to you straight for a moment. God does not expect you just to show up, sit on a seat, pay your tithes, every once in a while get prayed for, clap a few hands and say that was good, go home and do nothing. Can't find it anywhere. You can search it. it it's, not, it's not in there. So if you think God's expectations of you is to check the boxes, follow the rules, show up when you're supposed to, put a little money in the, bu- in the bucket, right? Because I got to pay. It's not really tithes; it's dues, right? We don't really we don't really give tithes and offerings. We we pay our dues so we can stay in the club. Because if we don't pay our dues, we can't be in the club. We have no we have no concept of the fact that what we own really doesn't. We don't own it; it belongs to him. But that's another subject for another day. Because that's expectations, right? Our expectations, God, I'll give you a little bit because the rest belongs to me, and I do what I want with it. But let's go further. And this is really the point I want to get to today. No more bystanders. There are no such thing as bystanders in God's church. There is no such thing as a bystander in Jesus' church. Every single person in Jesus' church is, is, should, should be, is it expected to be. Let's put it that way. Let's go with what we're, what our words are today. Every person in God's church is expected to be an active participant. 
No more bystanders. If you're, if, you're, if you're sitting with somebody today watching this, turn to them and tell them, stop being a bystander. Now, if that's your husband or your wife, you might, you might say it a little kinder than that. I don't want to cause marital rifts. <laughs> My wife is laughing at me. <laughs> uh, see, I told you, Bob, you shouldn't be a bystander. Okay, Sally, I'll stop. But you stop too. No, this is bad. I'm just going to have a litany of marriage counseling after this. But God's expectation is nobody in his church is a bystander. And therefore, if that's the case, we've got to move from consumers to contributors. And we're going to go through this rather quickly here today. But what does it mean to move from consumer to contributor? We're going to look at five different things that can help with that. Number one, consumers are spectators, but contributors are participants. Number two, and again, I don't know if you can read that. It looks kind of small for me, but the screen is way away from me, and my glasses aren't on, so it looks blurry. I'm believing in Jesus' name you can read it. If not, I'll read it for you. Consumers are spectators, but contributors are participants. Number two, consumers see themselves as a cistern. Contributors see themselves as a conduit. Y'all remember years ago, Bishop taught that. Bishop Wright talked about becoming a, a conduit. Not just a cistern. We're going to get that in just a minute. Number three, here's another shift. A consumer criticizes everything that doesn't line up with his or her preference. A contributor appreciates what God is doing in and through the church. So a consumer criticizes, a contributor appreciates. Whoo! Because you know what? As consumers, what do we do? We rate things. Three star, four star, five star. What do you do when you go buy something nowadays? You go online and you see, what's the rating? You go to a restaurant. What's the rating? You go to a store. What's the rating? You buy a product. When I go to Amazon, I sort my search based off reviews. And I start at the top. Which one got the highest reviews? And that's what we become with the church. Because consumers rate well, I like this church does this, and I like how they did this, and this is good. And, you know, that was a four-star sermon today, and that was a three-star worship today. And, and, and boy, that was a – but the overall experience I'll give to I – mean, that's how we kind of create – that's what consumers do. But contributors don't do that. Number four, a consumer comes to sit and get. A contributor looks to go and serve. And number five, we're going to get to all these in just a minute. A consumer only takes in for themselves, but a contributor pours out and into others. So let's look at these in a little more detail. Number one, a consumer is a spectator, but a contributor is a participant. Every one of us is the byproduct. Now get this. I wrote this. You got to get this here. This is huge. Every one of us is a byproduct of centuries of religious tradition where clergy performed all the ministry duties separate and apart from church members. As the church became more Roman, the chasm between the pulpit and the pew widened. However, Paul clearly stated the purpose of the fivefold ministry is to what? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We've read that. We talked about that. The goal of the ministers and leaders is to equip others not to execute all the ministry themselves. 
What does that mean? That means there is expectation on you to be involved. Now, this leads me to another point, and that's not the point for today. That's why we cannot define ministry based off location. I'm not going to get too deep in this today because this is a whole subject for a whole nother day. But just to remind you, that's why we have God's shifted our thinking, right? We can't define ministry by the walls or our location, the walls of building or location, because if that's the case, then I've always said this. And if, if ministry is defined by what takes place on Sunday or what takes place at a location, then here's the problem. There's only so many ministry slots available. What happens when all those ministry slots are filled? So let's take it for, let's just use it for a moment. I, I'm not going to be much longer, so bear with me. Let's look at this for a moment. Let's say you had a body, a church body of 500 people. God's expectation, not mine expectation, not your expectation, his expectation. We started off with what does God expect? So God's expectation of those 500 people is nobody is a bystander. And he gave the church, according to Ephesians 4, chapter 11, he gives the church the fivefold ministry, the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the 500 that are in this body to do the work of the ministry, his ministry, okay? So let's follow that for a moment. So we have 500 people. What ministry are they supposed to be doing? Because as tradition and as religion has defined ministry, ministry is done by the elite. So therefore, by the heads, and everybody else is a cheerleader or a spectator, or we recognize the fact, okay, everybody needs to be in ministry, so we have started to create a list, and sometimes an exhaustive list of ministries. But I gotta be honest with you, I don't know if you could create enough ministries to to be able to label 500 different slots, but let's say you did. Let's say somehow you were able to come up with, I mean, you had like, I mean, you had 500 uh, slots in ministry. So everybody, whoo, thank we did it. All right, we've done it. We've accomplished the goal. 500 in ministry. Because we have ministry slots and we've got, I mean, Sunday becomes like a, a, an orchestrated, uh, uh, choreographed um, uh, uh, operation. 500 people. Okay, great. But what about the people that are to come? So every time someone comes, you have a choice. You have to keep adding more ministries, more labels, more job titles. Or the people that come get in line and you hope that either what happens? One of the 500 either retires or walks away. And if they don't do that, you got to wait to your turn. Well, the problem is if you're waiting for your turn, that makes you a bystander. And how can you fulfill the scripture if you're not participating in his body? So what does that mean? That means we have mislabeled and misidentified and misapplied what this verse is really saying. And because of that, we've created consumers instead of contributors. Because so many of you don't realize the fact that God's expectation is for you to be involved in the work of the ministry. But guess what? 
His ministry is not defined by Sunday. His ministry is every day. Sunday is no more special than Monday in God's eyes. So consumer to contributor, my question is this. What do you expect? When you came on here this morning, what did you expect? Well, I got to just get on here because, you know, I got to make sure I'm watching in case someone asks me or, you know, I got to get on here because this is my church and I need to, you know, do my, you know, be a part of it. But, you know what, I don't know if I really, so my expectations aren't that great. Or was your expectations, God, what do you want to do today? What do you want to say today? What do you want to equip me with today so that I can be more like you and also can walk out my walk with you more more effectively every day so I can walk in the ministry you have called me in? Is that your expectation? That's why I started it. Does your expectation match God's expectation? But let's continue here. Consumers see themselves as a cistern. Contributors see themselves as a conduit. And the best illustration of this is, you. some of you know this, but it's a great way of defining this. Every Christian could be compared to one or two bodies of water. The Jordan River or the Dead Sea. What is the difference? The Jordan River runs from north to south. And it empties into the Dead Sea. The Jordan River has life. The Jordan River is a source of fresh water. The Jordan River is somewhat is a beautiful as it kind of sli- as it kind of winds its way through the valley. But the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is a place where water is stagnant. It just sits there. They call it Dead Sea for a reason because things go there to die. So what's the difference between the Jordan and the Dead Sea? Simply this. The Jordan has an inflow, but it has an outflow. So that water stays fresh. The Dead Sea has an inflow, but no outflow. So what does that mean? The water becomes stagnant and produces death. So as a consumer, if you only are a cistern, that means water is poured into you, but there's no water being let out of you. So what does it mean? What should be giving you life, what should be giving you strength, what should be giving you hope, what should be giving you righteousness and peace and all these wonderful benefits and gifts and fruit that comes from walking with Jesus, you experience none of that. Why? Because you're a cistern. You have inflow, but no outflow. So the things that come in you, instead of bringing life, they come inside of you to die. But when you're a contributor and you have an outflow, when things come in you, they bring life as they come in you, but also bring more life as they flow out of you. So you get double benefit. You get the blessing of what comes in, but you get the blessing of as it flows out. It's a double portion of blessing because if you're a consumer, it comes in, but you never see the beauty. You get death. You get it's it's ah, but a contributor gets the life coming in. And the life flowing out. Let's get a little further here. Two more. Consumers criticize everything that doesn't line up with their preferences. Contributors appreciate what God is doing in and through the church. Now watch this. When we let things that aren't the main thing divide us, it reveals exactly what we think about the body of Christ. It exists to cater our own personal preferences. 
when believers are not investing in others and being invested in, idle time affords them the opportunity to criticize others. I want to read that again. When the main thing is not the main thing, being like Jesus, fulfilling his mission, when that's not the main thing, it reveals exactly what we think about the body of Christ. And we let these things divide us. It, when, when, when we don't keep the main thing the main thing and we allow silly, dumb stuff, well, they didn't shake my hand. Or did you see the way they looked? It's just really stuff that should never divide us. Divide us, it proves what we think about the body of Christ and also further proves that we are really designed to cater to our own personal preference. And here's the bigger one. When believers are not investing in others and being invested in, what does that produce? Consumers have a lot of idle time on their hand and idle time affords them the opportunity to criticize. Because you know what? Honestly, Jesus is working on me so much lately, so I don't have time to sit around and figure out if you're doing it right or wrong. I'm just being frank with you. If you have time to look around everybody else and see what they're doing and why they're doing it, are they right or wrong? You have way too much time on your hands because honestly, I've got enough stuff to focus on on my own. I've got enough stuff that Jesus is working on. I've got enough stuff in my own life that he's working on and stuff that he's molding and making. I don't have time. I don't have time to sit around and look and say, well, this person is doing that and that person's doing that. To be honest with you, I don't have the time. If you've got the time, that proves, you know what? You're not spending a lot of time letting Jesus work on you. Here we go. I want to read this to you, and I hope you can see it again. I apologize if it's, I was told you can see it, and I'm believing you can still see it, but I want to read this to you. Ideally, this is a quote that I, that I, uh, I found, and I want to just, I, that's why it kind of has a little different wording, but it's a quote. I want to read this quote to you. Ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they are from a natural coalition, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. What does that mean? It means the fact is we don't come together because we all are like each other or like each other. There are some people you may or may not like. There may be people in your small group you may or may not like. I only want to be a part of a group of people I like. Not trying to be negative, and I, don't, I may offend you by saying this, but if you go to a small group, the first thing you want to know, who's there? Who, who attends? Well, I don't know if I want to go there because so-and-so's there. Actually, that may be the group you need to go to. If you walk into a small group and you go, oh, Lord, he's here. Oh, Lord, she's here. Guess what? You're probably in the perfect will of God. Why? Because there's no better place to express the love of Jesus Christ than to be in a place with people that aren't like you and people that maybe you don't like. 
The idea that everything in God is going to line up to your preferences, your expectations, and everything in your life is going to be, God's going to just make it a, a beautiful paved road. It's not, it's not, why, why would we need to love one another as Christ loved us if everybody around us was going to be like us? That would be easy. And we're not a group of natural friends. The church is made up of group of natural enemies. That's why no church should be a one color church. No church should be a one demographic church. One ch- no church should be a, a one educational church or a one uh, uh, economic church. A true church should have every slice of society in it from rich to poor, from black to white to blue to brown to green. It should have educated and uneducated. It, ha- it should have those who, who have great jobs and those who are at at the, at the bottom starting part. It should have people from every walk of life. It should have some people that are wonderful and kind and sweet and some people that are kind of prickly and if you catch them on the wrong day, they're not that nice. But a church should have every type. Why? Because that's a beautiful way of us coming together to be like Christ. And why? And I read it. They commit themselves to doing what he says and his command to love one another. Why? Because they because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. What brings us together? It's not our skin color. It's not our, our demographic, our education. None of that brings us together. What brings us together is that we all have been washed by the blood of Jesus and we would not be here but for his grace. Two more here and I'm done. Consumers come to sit and get. Contributors look to go and serve. There's no conceivable way any church staff could accomplish all the work for the gospel that needs to be done. They were never intended to be the ones doing that work in the first place. A contributor understands that the first word of the Great Commission wasn't said only to one category of person. It was said to anyone who calls Jesus Lord. It's completely fine to sit and be filled by biblical teaching or edification, but contributors take it a step further. They know they're being filled for the specific purpose of filling others who are still empty. Think. I don't know if you can see this. My mic is sort of of blocking that part of the of the sentence. But think of the potential army of contributors sitting shoulder to shoulder each week. What could God do if they were mobilized into the community to reach lost people and impact our cities? That's what happens when you shift from consumer to contributor. And here's the other one. Consumers only take in for themselves, but contributors pour into others. Notice, ministry can be taxing. This is why it's, it's increasingly crucial to be sure we are being filled by, from the only source who can sustain us to do his work because it's his work and that's Jesus Christ. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. You're never learning just for you, but for the people who will come after you. If we continue to believe a half gospel, what's a half gospel? That redemption is the finish line. Those in our church, in our community, in our home will be comfortable being consumers instead of contributors. 
So the question I have to you is, what are you today? What are you? What are you today? Are you a consumer or a contributor? What are you today? Consumer or contributor? That's the question that God is asking you today. It starts with what are your expectations? What are your expectations? Do your expectations match God's expectations? And here are some of the ways you can tell whether or not you're a consumer or a contributor. How you think about what we do, how you involve yourself in what's being done can, can be a sign to you. Are you a consumer? Are you a contributor? And so as we've gone through this list today and as we finish, was there anything on that list that you went, yeah, actually, I've been more consumer than I have been contributor? I know for so many of you, it's been a difficult challenge and a change that God has brought us in. And as we have continued to work through this, but can I say this to you today? That God is doing this because he's called us to be contributors, not consumers. No more bystanders. It is my desire and because it's God's desire in Antioch West that there are no bystanders in Antioch West. There are no bystanders. That everybody is a part. Everybody's a participant. Everybody's a contributor. That includes you. I don't care if you've been with us for five minutes or for 50 years. God has called you to be a contributor, not a consumer. But in order to do that, we've got to shift some of our focus. We've got to shift some of our understanding. We've got to shift our expectations away from our expectations to God's expectations, away from man's expectations to God's expectations, away from religion's expectations to his expectations. That's what we've got to do. We've got to change. So the question I have to do to you today, and this is what I'd want you to Digest today in your small group. Digest today in your prayer time. What are you? Are you a consumer? Are you a contributor? And what are some other ways in that we didn't cover today that makes someone a consumer and not a contributor? What are some other signs of consumers and not contributors? Because maybe this is, I'm not saying my list was exhaustive today. That was just five examples but maybe today you know some other examples of how we can be consumers and not contributors. Because God has expectations. He has expectations on his church. And therefore, if we're part of his church, he has expectations on you and I. And we have expectations. But where do our expectations come from? Do they come from him or do they come from ourselves? Do they come from him or do they come from religion? Do they come from him or do they come from some... Uh, 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 carnal ideology what are you today what are you today that's what jesus is asking all of us today and that's what i'm asking you what are you today as his grace works in our lives he is moving us all from consumers to contributors because he's calling all of us to be active members in his church in jesus name god bless you I pray in somewhere, somehow God has talked to you today and has challenged you. And if he needs to work some things in your life, that you would allow him to today in Jesus name. Until next time, God bless.